Look at somebody and say, it's good to see you. Now look back at them and say, it's good to see me too, all right? Hey, we're so glad that you're here. My name's Sam. I have the group who's been the lead pastor here at Crossroads Church. And what that means is every single week, I try to tell the greatest story ever told. Now, not because I'm some great communicator or it's even my story. I believe this story is a story about Jesus. And Jesus is the greatest person to ever walk the face of the planet. I actually believe he's more than just a person. I believe he's God in the flesh. And so if you've ever asked the question, what is God like? You don't have to look any further than the person of Jesus. And we believe the Bible is this story about Jesus. We say this around here. We say it's all about We wrote it on the wall at both campuses if you need some help with that. And if you are gathered together at 213 North J Street in Lompoc, we just want to welcome you. We are so glad that you're joining with us today. Maybe you didn't realize right now we have a gathering of people in Lompoc, one church in a couple locations. You'll see them at the midweek. And we're so thankful uh, for Pastor Tyler and his wife, uh, Becca, who led us in worship this morning. Didn't the team do an amazing job? Uh, this morning. And, um, and so we're so glad if you're gathering with us in Lompoc or here in Buellton. And if you need a Bible, um, if you need a Bible, uh, just lift up your hand and one of our ushers will get a Bible to you. Uh, and that'll help you follow along. And then if you don't have a Bible, that's our, that's our gift to you. We pray that you take that and read it every single day because every time you do, you get to meet with Jesus. Amen. Amen. This side of the room. Uh, and uh, every time you read the Bible, you get to meet with Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. And so, hey, turn in your Bible to the first book of the Bible, uh, the book of Genesis. I want you to look at Genesis chapter 17. And uh, I'm going to give a, uh, a little caveat for this message. This message is uh, rated uh, PG parental guidance. Uh, and uh, I just want to let you know we have kids areas for you. And uh, that's all I'm going to say about that. And you'll understand exactly what I mean as soon as we get into this text. And uh, and, and if you're a guest with us, welcome. Here's uh, the, um, the, the diet of uh, biblical text that we go through. Uh, we we would say we, we preach expositionally through books of the Bible, meaning that I didn't decide uh, my mood yesterday did not dictate the sermon today, and that's good for you. And uh, <laughs> my wife's like, amen. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so we allow books of the Bible to be the rudder that, that really turns this thing and allows uh, our church and our body of believers, and this begins to drive in. So we don't uh, kind of skip around. We, we take big uh, chunks of scripture and we say, hey, what is this book saying to us? And one of the most important books of the Bible would be the first book of the Bible. In this canon that we call the Bible is really a library of books, 66 books of the Bible put together. And it's really a library that you have to begin to navigate. And sometimes it can be uh, hard for us because we say, hey, uh, you should read your Bible and you read it like a book, like any other book. And you turn to the first 
page. You know, I'm going to start here. And, and then you get through the first few books of the Bible and you're like, I don't know what I'm reading, right? Uh, because it, there is cultural differences. There is time difference between us and the original uh, readers and authors of this text. There's a big gap between Genesis and the person of Jesus in the New Testament. And so there's some things that we have to navigate in a short period of time. And, and what we want to do is try to, uh, over weeks and weeks and weeks, as you're here every single week, amen. As you're here, as often as possible, we'll journey together and, and allow the text to be the foundation for what you believe. The most important question that you can begin to answer for your life is what do you believe about God? Uh, your theology, what you believe about creation, about God's design and intention for your life. This, uh, this is the question that you answer and everything flows downhill from that and your belief will drive your behavior. And so we don't want any one person, one pastor, one denomination or one church to dictate that. But together in community, faithfully submitting to the word of God, journeying and wrestling together with the text, we are on a pursuit pursuit of truth. And I'm convinced that when you pursue truth, you'll bump into Jesus because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen? Amen. And so we believe this Bible is one continuous story beginning to end about the person of Jesus. But it can be kind of difficult to deal with text like we're going to deal today and go, man, how are we going to get to Jesus? And if you say that after we read this text, then you know you should pray for your boy. And so let's read Genesis chapter 17. You can say amen when you're there. Amen. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make a covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and, and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations and I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations. I will make you into nations. Notice the plural of that. And kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourners, all of the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring af after you throughout generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. <laughs> 
You shall be circumcised in your flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now pray for your boy. Jesus, we love you. We thank you that this ancient text that has so many cultural implications, even today, there are traditions and culture uh, that permeate from this text. And Jesus, let us not be stuck in the text. Allow us to transcend, to see the grand picture that you're painting as we faithfully journey through the passage. I pray that you would help me in my ignorance, in my weakness, in my lack, communicate the person of Jesus and the story that you are writing. And we ask for your grace to be with us. In Jesus' name, everybody said... Amen. Amen. Here's this famous passage, this passage that means so much to so many. This is essentially the covenantal sign that God gives to Abraham, changes his name from Abram to Abraham. And the way I understand that is he moves his name to the plural of his name and to imply that he will be the father of many nations. The text will go on and he'll do the same with Sarah and he'll change her name from my princess to princess. He will give her a plural to, uh, to imply that they will be uh, the mother and father of generations. And, and this text is held on by so many people. Uh, this particular text is the place that the people of Israel, the Jewish people, uh, they begin to get a, a custom of circumcision. Uh, this uh, detail uh, that many of us men, well, I, I read this, I, I can just tell you knowing uh, this season of our church is as we can have guests come in and we have people searching and, and we have a full house. I can tell you that this is not the passage I wanted to pick for today. Right? This, is not, this is not one of those uh, alley-oop type sermons. Man, that will preach, man. I'm a, uh, this is just going to be one of those uh, messages. It, it, it's not one of those things where we go, man, I'm going to try in front of a couple hundred people, try to explain why God used circumcision as the sign of his covenant. Right? <laughs> You're praying for me, right? And... And yet, like, we get in this scenario, and maybe this is a conversation we've had. I got three boys, and, and, and this is a part of uh, a medical procedure that we've been a part of eight days into their life. Or, or, or maybe this is a conversation, you talk about the health benefits of it. You didn't realize that this was actually a religious ritual that's been performed and practiced for thousands of years. Now, some people believe that this is unique to the Jewish people. And it's, it's not. Actually, in this uh, ancient world that we begin to study that the book of Genesis is written of, this was a, a normative 
practice and even a religious practice. And then God takes this particular religious practice and he uses it and he uses it as a sign or symbol of the covenant, not the covenant, but a sign or symbol of the covenant. And this particular conversation is going to carry all the way through to the New Testament. And it is going to become a big deal in the early church, in the first followers of Jesus, there is going to be debates and arguments from this particular part because they read this passage and they go, hey, here is the point. See, sometimes we can, we can get caught up on the method and we miss the message. Let me say that again because you probably want to tweet that later or something. And so, sometimes we get caught up on the method and we miss the message, right? right. Sometimes we could be preparing a, a dinner party and, and we want the table set a certain way and we could get caught up on it has to go here and we can forget that the dinner party is about the people who are at the dinner party and if they sit in the wrong place and use the wrong fork and in the wrong place, you're like, hey, do you don't do that in my house. Right, we don't do that here. And you can get caught up on the method. You can get caught up on the tradition. See, that happens in a very practical way. It happens in our homes. It happens when we host people. It happens when we get so caught up on the details and we miss, miss the point of what we're actually doing. And that's so easy to do in traditional settings. It's so easy to be removed from the, the principle of the tradition, what the tradition was trying to teach us, what it was pointing to and we can get in, we can begin to marry that and miss the whole point of why we started doing that particular thing to begin with. We, we talked about this in the Christmas season. We, we talked about how we can get caught up in the, in the things that we do, the hustle and bustle or the traditions that we've kind of put in place and miss. And you, and you, and you think about it, like around the holiday season, well, it could be some of the most tumultuous times. It, it could be some of the most difficult times relationally, but yet all the traditions that we practice around Christmas are meant to foster relationships. Relationships and those very traditional things, those, those things, they, they can hinder the very thing we're trying to cultivate. I think from those very simple, practical, very real, tangible, real world examples, you can understand how this particular passage can get mis construed. Now, I, 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 I read this text and there's some powerful parts of this text. And then there's this part that goes, man, that's strange. And, and that's weird. And uh, that's bloody and grotesque. And it's not something that we should talk about in public. Yet here we are. And, 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 and so the, the, I don't want you to miss because we read all these other parts of the text and then all of a sudden we hit the e-break and go, wait, what? What are we talking about? But the, let me remind you of the first parts of this text. God begins to speak to Abram and he says, I am God almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. He gives a prologue here. Any other time from here on out, when God begins to speak to his people, he'll begin to reference his relationship with Abram and Abraham and his sons. Notice when God begins to speak, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He begins to give a lineage of his covenant and what he's done. But 
This is God establishing his covenant. And so he begins to speak of who he is. He's beginning to reveal himself to Abraham. We've been reading throughout Genesis how God has been dealing with all of humanity, showing us what all of humanity, humanity will do. But now he zooms in and he shows what one man, one family, and this is what we've been learning is families turn into nations. This is what we've been discovering through Genesis. When God first speaks to Abraham, he says, listen, I'm going to make you, I'm going to make you into a great nation and all the families of the earth will be blessed. And we've been talking about how sometimes we can be so removed from how nations are built and we forget that great nations are built from great families. And then what happens is, is the inverse is true that the degradation of the family will result in the demise of nations, that one builds up the other. They are not mutually exclusive. And so the family becomes important. And so let me give you this little caveat here, friend. If you're worried about the condition of the nation, you should be far more concerned with the condition of your family. When you get caught up on world events, you, you should be more, uh, even more so concerned about loving your wife and caring for your children. Somebody say amen, amen. to that. Sometimes we can be so removed from it and, and we get caught up on the big scheme of thing and forget how we are intricately tied to the grander things. And we can think that the, the small things are mundane and unimportant, but we serve a big God who takes a lot of ordinary, small, mundane, obedient things, and he begins to work them together and build them together through this grand family that he will put on display the greatness of who he is to his People. So don't grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we'll obtain the prize of our great King Jesus. Amen? Amen. So don't despise small things. Know that small things build great nations. And that's what we've, we've seen. We've seen here, we're removed from that sometimes. We think nations are the important things and families are those foundational things. And yet God is saying, listen, no, I am God and I want you to walk blameless. Those are the word blameless. Walk blameless before me. Now we've already read the story of Abram, Abraham formerly known as Abram. We've learned that he is not blameless. He's not above reproach. He's not perfect in all his ways. And that's good news for you and I, friend. Because if you're say, Pastor Sam, you're going to need to be blameless to be in this position. I will need to resign my platform, friends. And yet, this is good. We're in good company. We've been talking about how the Bible is a story about everyone else getting it wrong and one person getting it right. Here's the beautiful thing about this library of text that we read. It is the text does not hide the flaws of our heroes. It does not hide the sinfulness of our patriarchs. 
It, it, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't learn from them, amen? It doesn't mean that we can't uh, look at what's good and, 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 and begin to see the, the, the superlatives rise throughout uh, these different characters of the Bible. But we also do not remove their flaws because then we will have a, a misconception of what it means to walk with God and ultimately how it is that we walk with God blameless. Because here's the caveat here, walk with me blameless. But what we see in Abram, Abraham is he's not blameless. He's lied already about his, his wife calling her his sister to spare his own life from Pharaoh during a famine. He's not willing to give up his life for his wife. And yet it's a foreshadowing of Christ who will lay his life down for his bride, the church. Then it goes on to say, I will make you, I will make my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. Let me just, let me just give this word for you practically, because sometimes in our culture, and especially in Pentecostal or charismatic spirit field like churches, we can begin to throw around the idea that God spoke to us. Wasn't it, wasn't how many, how many grew up in the church? I mean, yeah, come on. Like we know who to stay away from at the coffee. And because uh, you ask them how they're doing, like, I'm good, bless God, blessed in the city, blessed in the field, blessed above and not beneath. I'm the head only, and, right? Come on. Uh, and, 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 and yet, how many of you grew up in youth group? Right. Remember the, the fear when the awkward kid came up to you and was like, God told me we're going to get married. <laughs> right. You're like, no, he, didn't, he didn't tell me that. Right. Like, he, no, 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 no. Right. Like, you're like God told me you were the one. <laughs> you're like, I, I don't believe in the one. I believe in multiplication. And, uh, <laughs> I got options. And, 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 and yet, sometimes we throw around that God has spoken to us so flippantly. And what we see is when God speaks to people in, in, in the scripture is there's a holy fear that comes on. So be careful throwing around, especially with your friend. Hey, maybe you give a caveat. Hey, I feel like. Hey, I just want to lay before you. I feel like God is speaking or I feel like God is doing this. Be careful and throw him because here God spoke to Abram and what did he do? He fell down on his face. When the God of the universe, when you feel like he's speaking, he's moving and God still speaks. Amen. He uses his word and he uses the community of faith to begin to give, uh, give accountability to that, to test that, uh, to, to begin to keep you in balance. And he doesn't speak outside of his word, but he begins to woo you and, and move you forward. My son uh, said it this way when he, was, when he was five years old. I was walking over. I got a long commute to, to work and... Uh, and I was walking across the parking lot and uh, right before I left to come to service and I was preaching on hearing from God and, and my son was like in a dead sleep uh, on the couch. And as I walked, as I walked by him, he just kind of looked up at me like, like real quick, dead eyed me. And, and he was like, Hey dad. I was like, yeah, I, I thought you were asleep, but he's like, you know, you can't hear God when he talks. And I was like, yeah. He's like, but he makes you know. I was like, okay, buddy. 
and then he just went back to sleep. And I was like, that was freaky, right? That's a little spooky, a little kooky, right? Like, but, but he said this to me. He said, you can't, you can't hear God when he talks, but he makes you know. See, the Bible says in this way that the Holy Spirit will lead you and guide you into all truth. He will confirm his word. He'll point to it. He speaks to you in the innermost being. He illuminates for his word. There'll be songs that you hear. There'll be certain songs. Uh, There'll be one worship song that you hear and you go, that was a good song. And then there'll be certain songs that you hear that put on display the glory of Christ and, and it will begin to move you in ways because it's communicating the gospel and what Christ has done. And you'll be like, that hits different. It's because the Holy Spirit is beginning to point to the truth of the gospel. You'll hear sermons that are different. Parts of the sermon that will will be different. There'll be parts where this is informational. There'll be parts where I'm just grooving along. And there'll be parts where the glory of Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection. And all of a sudden you'll stop and the room will go quiet and you'll realize the Holy Spirit is bringing an attention to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because this isn't merely history. This isn't story time. This is where you and I together try to wrestle with the implication that God is here with us in our midst and he speaks and he speaks louder than human beings. He speaks louder than the philosophies and ideologies of the world and he will make you know to the innermost parts of your being. So when you do know and you're convinced You pursue that with humility and with grace and you test that and you don't think you know everything with everybody and you're not calling your family members like, listen, I got a word from God for you. And you ask them, were you on your face first? Were were you pleading with God for me first? And so there there are things, there are principles that, that, that that's not the grand point of this text, but there's part of this text that I can learn from. I can say, man, the God of the universe spoke to Abram, changes his name to Abraham, and he falls to his face. Notice in the New Testament, when angels appear to Mary, when angels appear to Zechariah, uh, they begin to fall on their face. The book of Revelation, John, the revelator who writes the book of Revelation, when God spoke to him, he fell down as though he were dead. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And you have a fear and reverence. And there's a fear and reverence when we read his word. You go, man, I don't agree with that part. And you have to go, man, is your way better than God's way? And you approach the text with fear that God knows more than you do. And that's good news. He falls as though he were dead on his face and said, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abraham. He begins to change his name. You're going to be a father. You're going to be fruitful and multiply. And then he goes on and gives this sign of the covenant. He gives this sign of circumcision. Now it, what we read in the text is it's not the covenant, but it is a sign of the covenant. And I've heard one theologian reference this. Why circumcision? Well, um, PG 13, uh, man and woman, they get married and they have babies. You heard of this, right? And, uh, 
And so then when, 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 when God is talking about offspring, it has to do with a particular part of anatomy with men. And it's a sign and a reminder that, hey, your offspring matters forever. This thing that, that there is a part of you, a sign of the covenant. Now, why he chose that? Th th this seems grotesque. This seems strange. I'm gonna. I, I don't know if that's gonna be on the top of my list when I get to heaven. Like <laughs> circumcision, really? Right? Like that's what you chose? But here, here's, here's what I know in a culture of sexuality, in a culture where we are driven by sex. When, when we are driven by our desires, when, when, when we have grotesque and common language on what we are driven by, God chooses to have a sign of circumcision as the thing that we will forever be aware that man and woman and that relationship and offspring, it matters above all things. And it will be the covenant it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And then all of a sudden you go, that doesn't seem so strange. It seems, it doesn't seem so strange to be reminded that if there was a covenant between you and God and he was going to use you to bless your family and your children and their families and, and their children, it doesn't seem so outside of the norm to use this as a sign of the covenant. But then this sign becomes the message. It becomes the thing. It becomes the debate uh, moving forward. This would be a, a, a ritual that the Jewish people would use all the way up to the time of Jesus and even beyond. This is still practiced today. And then it would be used to create categories of the circumcised and the uncircumcised. Or in other words, those who are of God and those who are not. And yet, what we read in the scriptures before Abraham, before the sign of circumcision, is that he begins to say that I will bless all of the families of the earth. Not just the ones who are in, not just the ones who are of the circumcised group. And, and, and if understanding this particular passage, we move to the New Testament if you don't know where this comes from, when, when you read texts like out of Ephesians 2, now Ephesians 2 is one of my, uh, one of my most favorite passages. Ephesians 2 starts by saying you were once dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked following the course of this world. You were like dead people walking, right? I've heard that somewhere, walking dead. Right? So the, Hollywood did not come up with the idea of zombies. The Bible did. <laughs> he says that there's a difference between living and merely existing. And there were many of us who were like dead people walking. And if you were to ask someone what they were like before Christ, they might explain it like that. They would go, man, I was empty, dead, and I did dead things. So let, let me just give you a caveat there. Don't be offended when dead people do dead things. Because you too once were dead in your trespasses and sin. Don't look to the world, those who are far from God, and point your finger and go, ha, ha. No, bring them the gospel of light, which is the life of men. So 
He goes on and talks about how we were dead in our trespasses and sin, but God in his great mercy and love to show the immeasurable riches of his grace. Or in other words, let me give you something profoundly theological. Why does God save you? Not because you're awesome, because he's awesome. Amen? Amen. Let me say that again. God does not save you because you're awesome, but because he's awesome. Why does he save us? To show just how good he is. For by grace, you're familiar with this passage, for by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace, grace means uh, undeserved unmerited favor with God chosen, not because you're good because he's good. And he picks you and gives you favor with him that you do not deserve grace through faith, through the lens of faith, through my belief, through me seeing that he's worthy. That's how I'm saved. Least anyone should boast. Least anyone puff up their chest and say, man, I've saved myself. I've worked up to salvation. I've done all the right things. I've checked all the right boxes. And now I'm on the in crowd. Says, no, least anyone should boast for this is a gift of God. Ephesians 2.10, famous passage. My friend Matt read this at Ironwork the other night. For you are God's workmanship. You are handcrafted in order to do good works God has prepared in advance for you to do. How many have heard those passages before? And these are powerful passages. By grace, you have been saved and, and, and you are God's work. You were created in by God to do good works. Then it goes on. We usually stop there and verse 11 goes on. Therefore, remember that at one time Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. He literally goes on. And now after all those famous passages, all those profound passages of grace and goodness, he brings back in this conversation of circumcision and the, differ- the, the, the difference between two groups of people. The circumcision group, which would be Jews by birth, ethnic Jews who have, called, who have carried out this ritual and this group of people, Gentiles, who have not, who are coming from other customs, from other cultures, and now they're in one church, but there's a division between these two groups of people. It seems important as you see the Bible from the beginning, this library of books in Genesis, Genesis 17, now Ephesians 2 brings up this conversation that was started thousands of years ago. What's the conversation? The conversation is we're in because we were here first and and we have the mark even in our body that we are God's chosen people and everyone else is second class citizens. Now that's a difficult thing to think. The Bible will tell us in Acts 15 that there were groups of people that people were coming to faith in Jesus and, and they were in a church like this. They were hearing the gospel. They were not Jews by birth, which is predominantly us. That, that, that there were people that were, they were calling and labeling the Judaizers and they were basically coming in and, and, and they were having a men's meeting and they were having grown men sign up for circumcision class. That's the Bible, right? Could you imagine like it's like ironworks, it's like sword works, right? <laughs> Can't tell, like, let, me tell, let me tell you, like, like uh, I warned you guys this sermon was going to go this way before I started this, right? Like, like, like th- th- this is really a conversation. Paul's even going to write in Galatians. He's going to say this. He's going to say, who bewitched you? He says, how could you fall back into this. 
What do you mean? Didn't you, didn't you realize? And he's going to write in Galatians. He's going to write in Romans 4. He's going to write in Colossians. And he's going to begin to bring this issue of circumcision to, uh, to our minds in this particular culture. We're far removed from this debate. We're far removed from this debate. This is not, uh, this is not a debate that we're having as a religious uh, setting. We're having this debate on health reasons. We're having this debate when we have boys. But this is not an open dialogue of a religious debate. How does that translate for us now? Here's what we can relate to. We can relate to when certain people feel like because of what they've done, and how good they have become, or maybe in where they were born, what city they were born in, what state they were born in. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> they, they were raised from, from birth. Well, I, I've never let anything like that touch my lips. I've been raised in the church. I, I've been around it. And someone who walks in and they look quite Different. I remember preaching through the book of Galatians, one of the first books that we went through here. This was, this was one of those conversations. And here's how I begin to relate this to us. How many, how many grew up, uh, when you would get up in the morning and you go to church, you would put on your church clothes, right? Some of you got your church clothes on today. Mark Thompson, you're looking good, right? And I remember this was controversial because I said, listen, there are no such thing as church clothes. Some of you are scared because I just pointed out all the church clothes people. And hey, you know, there's no such thing as church clothes. There's, there's only uh, clothes. <laughs> and they are required for attendance. <laughs> Okay, uh, they are required, and 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 yet sometimes what could happen? Like when I grew up in a in a in a, in a kind of tradition that like you, you wore your Sunday best. You, you, you begin to wear, uh, something that you would say, man, I'm not going to go into the house of God in the, these clothes. And then man, I grew up in a coal mining, uh, community. I grew up where the people, men, faithful men of God would come out of the coal mines with black coal dust on their face and feel ashamed and not walk into church and go, no, no, I'm going I'm to stay outside because I, I don't feel like I can come in to church. And yet, see, what can happen is, is what we maybe don't understand is this difference between the circumcision and the uncircumcised party. But what we can understand is when groups of people begin to look at others as if somehow what they do, where they're from, and, and what they've been raised in is somehow better and superior to others. We do know what that's like. Paul begins to rebuke that. Paul begins to say, no, 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 who's bewitched you? What makes you think that you got in here on your own merit? Don't you realize that the covenant God made with Abram, Abraham was prior to circumcision and this circumcision was a symbol? What's a symbol? It's like the wedding ring I have on is not my marriage. It's a symbol of my marriage. It's, it's, what I, it's what represents the covenant vows that I've made with my wife. 
Many of you, whether you wear a ring or what symbol, uh, the tattoo you got on your finger, we all have symbols that point to. See, see, circumcision was used as a symbol of God's covenant. And it was made in the flesh as bloody and grotesque and unbecoming of a public gathering. It was a sign that ultimately the covenant of God would be made through the blood of of flesh. Colossians says it this way. Becca, if you want to come on up. Colossians says this, in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What is the circumcision of Christ? What was this pointing to? It was the cross. It was at the cross that this bloody, grotesque, unbecoming, the Bible would tell us that people, that that Jesus would be beaten beyond human recognition and people would turn their face from him. But this would be the sign that God would make an everlasting covenant with you. And it wouldn't be based on your merit. It would be based on his merit. Be based on what he does. That's why we're saved by grace, unmerited, undeserved favor with God. So, so all of a sudden we, we realize in the text that this conversation is trying to paint a bigger picture. Here, here, here's what I've been saying for years because sometimes we can get stuck on our page and we can get stuck on pages of the text is God is writing a bigger story than the page you're living on. See, he can use small details and write a big story. He can can take what seems insignificant and somehow point to the grand story, the grand narrative. See, we get stuck on Genesis 17, these rituals, strange ritual we get stuck there and we don't realize that God is writing a big story and the story he is writing is that he would set out to create a new covenant he would make a new covenant with us and it would be in his blood And the payment for our sin would be dealt with. Why? So we could walk blameless before him. So that you could know by faith that your shame is taken away, your guilt is absolved, and you can walk boldly before the throne room of grace. I find this passage in Hebrews so strange. It says, the word is sharp and quick quicker than any two-edged sword, piercing and dividing the asunders of the soul and the spirit. Deuteronomy will prophesy that how we will live is by the circumcision of our heart, that we will be cut open. He says, you know what the, 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 the real marker is a surgery of the heart. You know what's going to be the real sign, the real symbol? Is that God 
does something new in the heart of his people. Where you realize like there was an old you and then there's the new you. People who follow Jesus are hyper aware that there are two yous that live in you. Some of you need to tell the old you, knock it off. I'm new. I'm a new creation. Here's what it says. That the word is sharp and quick and powerful like any two-edged sword. Pierces and divides to the asunders of the soul and spirit and divides the very intent of your heart. See, when you read the Bible, it's like it reads you. It will read your intent. Your motives. And then it says, laid bare, stripped. Nothing is hidden from his sight. It takes and personifies the word. The word is sharp and quick. And sometimes in church, we're like, we, we would read that and, and, and we would quote that like we were in a, a rap battle, right? We quote verses, right? You ever, you ever met those people who use Bible verses like it's a zinger? You got them. God says, no, no, no. Don't you know the Bible says this? And yet, it's meant to be used on us first. We're to reckon with what the scriptures say. And it says that we are stripped, laid bare, nothing is hidden without a sight, but yet we can walk boldly before the throne room of grace. I find that such an oxymoron. Stripped, naked, and bare. And you walk boldly into the throne of the eternal God? Boldly. Naked and bold. Doesn't make sense, friends. That's not our story. Like Adam and Eve, we cower and we hide in shame. Our mistakes, when we're stripped, when people find out, when we feel exposed... And yet the Bible says he knows everything and he's cutting away and he's doing away with all the wickedness. He's doing all away with the sinfulness and he's removing your shame with it that you don't have to hide and you can come boldly before the throne room of grace where you can find favor in his sight. What's the point of this passage is that you have a symbol that you can point to and it's the cross of Jesus Christ. And when the enemy comes in with shame and says, you're not worthy, you're not able, you're not able to lead your family, sir. You don't know enough about the Bible. You got a past. What makes you think you could teach your kids, buddy? Man, if they knew you, if they knew what you were like back in the day, you would never try to teach them story time when it's nighttime and you want to teach them about Jesus. The enemy comes in and he's the accuser of the brethren. He's trying to keep you from raising your children. He's trying to keep you from loving your wife and serving her and leading her in the knowledge because he's beginning to point his finger. But you go, no, 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 I've been stripped naked bare before the Lord and I've received grace. I can walk boldly, unashamed. Why? 
not because of the circumcision of my flesh, but the circumcision of my heart. It's been made new. He's done surgery and I got something new and it's not because of me. It's because of him. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. You don't have to be ashamed. You don't have to cower in fear. You don't have to, and you're not looking to your supreme. Be careful, sir. Be careful, ma'am, that you think your accolades and your spiritual things and all your, all, 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 all your religious duties. <laughs> Man, the other day I was, I was playing an arcade game in front of a performer, a former professional athlete. <laughs> And I was like, do you see my high score on the, on the basketball? He was like, yeah, I saw it, Sam. That was cute. I was drafted by the Braves. He didn't say that. Sometimes, here's, here's what we got to realize. Sometimes our spiritual accolades, we puff out our chest thinking we've won the Super Bowl and we're playing arcade games. We're, we're, we're building houses in the metaverse and thinking that somehow we have real shelter. Your spiritual accolades are filthy rags. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, least anyone should boast. And you too once were dead in your trespasses and sins, so be careful to begin to point out the speck in your brother's eye, deal with the plank in your own, allow God to strip you, and then boldly before the throne room of grace, receive the mercy of God that will propel you into what he's called you to do. For you are God's workmanship, handcrafted to do good works prepared in advance for you to walk in. Not by might, nor by power, but by his spirit, says the Lord. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we've received mercy and grace. So when the enemy comes in and says, you're not worthy to be in that church, don't invite that friend to church. They know you. When the enemy says, you're, you're not worthy to teach your children. God, I'm forgiven, bought with a price. I've been made new and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When the enemy says, you're, you're not worthy to be a wife, a godly wife, he's made you brand new. You say, I'm not worthy to be a husband, to be a father. He has saved you and called you according to his purpose. And he's making something new for his glory and our good. Thank you, Jesus. Everybody said, Amen. Will you give Jesus one more hand clap of praise?